0: Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream, and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some are not, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories to tell. Today we're talking with Laura Stemple, the Director of Graduate Studies at the UCLA School of Law and the Director of the Health and Human Rights Law Project. Her teaching and research areas are human rights, global health, gender, sexuality, HIV, AIDS, and incarceration. In 2014, she was the co-author of a paper called The Sexual Victimization of Men in America, New Data Challenge Old Assumptions. It was published in April 2014 in the American Journal of Public Health and looked closely at male victimization. They found, according to federal surveys, that there was a high prevalence of sexual victimization among men similar to the prevalence found among women, and that women are far more often than previously thought the perpetrators of sexual violence against males. This research, most recently, has been substantiated by a new paper just released in Aggression and Violent Behavior, called Sexual Victimization Perpetrated by Women. Federal data reveal surprising prevalence.
1: I have been working in this field for about 17 years, first as an advocate, as a lawyer, um, working for a women's rights organization. And then later, I directed an organization working on sexual violence in prisons, jails, and immigration detention. And we worked on the issue as it affected both women and men, but because men are upwards of ninety percent of those held behind bars, uh, it was really the majority of the victims we were hearing from were men. So I began to try to apply some of the lessons that I had learned as a women's rights advocate, someone who was part of the anti-rape movement for a long time, I tried to apply those lessons to men. And I found that it was possible to do so, you know, even using a feminist lens. And we can we can talk about that. But just to, to answer your question about how I got into it, I began to work with survivors who were men. Um, I began to do policy-related advocacy on their behalf. And I also began to notice that there was a lack of high quality research related to this topic. Um, and so a few years ago, together with another colleague at UCLA called Elon Meyer, we decided to look at really these um, large-scale federal agency surveys uh, that had been done across multiple years in order to glean an overall picture about what was happening in terms of male victimization. And we did that published that study, did some media work around it, and actually it was a number of reporters who I was working with to to cover the story about male victimization and they just said we do not understand the female perpetrator. How many are there? Who are they? What is going on? And frankly I had trouble answering their questions because I had worked so much more on the victim side. And when I realized that there were a significant percentage of perpetrators who were women. I decided to undertake another big project um, on that side of things, together again with Elon Meyer, and this time we added Andrew Flores of Mills College. So um, that was that was the origin.
0: And that's that second study just came out here recently, correct?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, it was just published in a peer peer-reviewed journal called Aggression and Violent Behavior. The first study was in the American Journal of Public Health.
0: Do the two sort of buttress each other, or is the second one uh, a continuation of the first and uh, looking more in-depth into the topic?
1: I would say the two studies are equally in-depth. In a way, they're two sides of the same coin. We wanted to look at the victims and perpetrators who run counter to stereotypes. So, We looked at male victims in the first study, and we looked at female perpetrators in the second study. So in the second study, we looked at female perpetrators, um, and we included both male and female victims. So the majority of victims are male when females are the perpetrators, but there are women who are victims of sexual violence against women as well.
0: Let's go back to the first study, if we could just a, a bit uh, you found in looking at uh, all of the federal surveys around correct that that uh, people who were incarcerated were not counted in any of their studies
1: well, people who are, in, who are currently incarcerated at the time the survey is taken are excluded from one of the main surveys, which is the survey by the Bureau of Justice Statistics that many of your listeners will be familiar with. It's called the National Crime Victimization Survey, right. and it's reported widely in the media each year. And that's the survey that tells us, <clears throat> excuse me, for example, whether violent crime is increasing or decreasing broadly in the United States. And that survey is a household survey, so it it, um, it only includes people who are living in households at the time the survey is taken, and therefore excludes inmates. Now it might include someone who has recently been released. So looking only at crime in a 12-month period, so if someone experienced a crime while incarcerated and were released and were in that survey, they would be included. But that's that's not going to be very many people.
0: You also talk about uh, in the first survey, I believe the the Changing definition of sexual violence against men. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes. So the FBI, in another survey, which um, counts the number of crimes that are reported to the police around the country each year, in that survey, um, when the, when the FBI was asking states to report their data, they defined rape in a way that specifically excluded. Male victim. So it, it literally, the language was that it was that the victim had to be female. So this did not, and this was this was the definition used for for nearly a century. And um, many states had moved on and had created much more inclusive definitions that did not did not specify the sex of the victim. And so um, so it created this mismatch between what states knew was happening um, and what the FBI was willing to hear. Um, and so at one point Chicago was so fed up that they just said, we're not separating it anymore. It doesn't even make sense and it's wrong. So they just sent the FBI all of their data on rape and sexual assault. And so then the FBI excluded Chicago, which is a huge city obviously from the national sure. count. So uh, eventually they changed it, but it wasn't until it wasn't until 2012 and um, so it's so this this is an evolving field, this is an evolving area of study. Um, but as you can see, even quite recently, um, there was a there was a really um, clear <laughs> barrier to understanding what was really happening for male victims.
0: Also, uh, the Center for Disease Control uh, came out with a category uh, called "being made to penetrate." Talk about that a bit.
1: Sure. So the CDC did something quite interesting, which is to launch a very comprehensive um, survey uh, done by telephone, where they reach thousands upon thousands of Americans, and it's uh, it's weighted, meaning it's representative of the overall U.S. population. And it was it's a very important study, very groundbreaking. The questions are very frank, which which encourages people to disclose what really happened. They ask multiple questions about, about these issues. Um, they train their survey, uh, the, the people who are who are using the survey instrument, the interviewers, they train them quite well to make the respondents quite comfortable. They do check-ins about their well-being as the survey is progressing. And importantly, they asked similar questions to women and to men. So we've had a lot of good surveys over the last few decades that that um, asked women about their victimization experiences, and we've had a few that have asked men, but not too many, and fewer still that have, have asked everybody in one survey. So they asked everybody, and then they reported what they found, and this survey um, included also non-sexual intimate partner violence included stalking, but we were looking at specifically at sexual victimization, so that was the data that we relied upon in part for our, um, our survey that looked at multiple agencies. And the interesting thing is that the CDC found that women and men were reporting virtually similar rates of non-consensual intercourse which was astonishing to us. That was when we saw that. That was when we decided to write the first paper because we thought, nobody knows this. This survey was released by the CDC, but it did not get picked. This this particular shocking piece of information was not picked picked up up on in the media. And in part, I think the reason that it wasn't attended to is that it was presented by the CDC in a confusing way that minimizes the victimization of men and what they did is they created this new category that you were referring to in your question called being quote made to penetrate quote so what that means is that the person who is reporting the sexual victimization saying I did experience something that was abusive they were made to penetrate someone else and so the CDC doesn't count that as rape so they, when they define rape in their survey, the victim has to be the person who was penetrated. So if a man was penetrated himself, he could count as a rape victim. But right. if he was made to penetrate someone else, he did not count as a rape victim. And this is just uh, runs counter to what a lot of contemporary researchers are doing. So a lot of questions now ask things along the lines of, did you force someone else to have sex against your will, or did someone force you to have sex against your will? And if you say yes, you are counted as a rape victim. And it doesn't matter which direction the penetration was. It just matters that you had sex and it was non-consensual.
0: And that could um, be physical force or coercion or, or somebody being in a physical or mental condition where they could not give consent, right?
1: Exactly, yeah. So, so, so the CDC definition... You know, I don't have it completely committed to memory, but it is very much along the lines that you say, which is that the person was either forced or threatened with force, or they were so drunk or drugged or incapacitated or passed out that they were unable to consent. So, so it's a it's a relatively high standard. Um, And what they did, so they found that 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 about the same numbers of men were reporting that they were made to penetrate someone else as. As women reported that they were were raped by the CDC's definition. But what they did is they took the numbers, the, the made to penetrate numbers, and they categorized them differently. They put them in another category um, uh, not, uh, called non-rape sexual offenses. And so they reported out, here are the numbers for rape, and here are the numbers for non-rape sexual offenses in the second category. And in that second category, along with being made to penetrate were other much less severe harms including non-contact sexual harms like literally there was no touching so, so something like flashing or lewd comments um, and put the, that male made to penetrate category together alongside that which in our view is wrong because it minimizes male victimization and so then, what the media saw was, okay, we have these rape numbers for women and men. Look, women are raped a lot more often than men are, um, because it, because the form of abuse that that men are most likely to experience in non-consensual sex wasn't counted in those in those rape numbers.
0: Um, a male's physical arousal has always been part of the confusion of, about male victimization, has it not?
1: Absolutely. I can tell you know, uh, you know a lot about this issue because that's a very astute question, and it is exactly as you say. It's, it's terribly confusing, especially for victims. So I have talked to male victims who experienced arousal during abuse, and they ha- experienced a range of reactions to that. So I've heard men tell me that they felt betrayed by their very own bodies. I have heard men tell me that they, it caused them to question their sexual orientation. If the abuse was happening at the hands of another man and they identify as heterosexual, they did not understand why they were aroused and knew in their hearts that they didn't want it. I have also heard men say that they feel that they can't come forward and tell anybody about the abuse they experienced. Because of the fact that they were aroused, they think then they won't be believed. If, the, if those details come out, it will be evidence against them that they actually wanted it. So it is very confusing. It is a normal physiological reaction, um, but it isn't something that many people talk about, and it's also something that a lot of men aren't aware of. So, um, so when they experience abuse and they experience arousal, it just makes it harder for everybody to understand what happened, and it makes it harder for people to report.
0: One of the things that have, has always plagued uh, male victimization, especially uh, with women as the uh, perpetrators, uh, is, is the uh, fact that it's so underreported. Did, did you find that as well?
1: Well, it, yes. So when you compare the numbers in official reports, To uh, what we see in these anonymous surveys, there's a huge discrepancy, so that does indicate that this form of abuse is underreported. So the surveys that we're talking about, um, one is this CDC telephone survey, so it's one interviewer, one respondent. Um, We think that there were really um, significant rates of disclosure because of how well the interview was conducted and because of the sensitivity of, of the interviewers and the anonymity of the survey. Um as you move to the National Crime Victimization Survey, where it's a household survey, it's one member of the household reporting for everybody else in the household. So query whether the person reporting on the phone knows about all of the potential sexual victimization experiences of everybody else in the family. And then, then further still, when you move toward collecting police data, which means someone had to have the wherewithal to go and report an abuse to the police, the numbers fall off even further. Um, Further still, if you look at who the police choose to believe or who the police find any, uh, you know, they report it to prosecutors, prosecutors decide whether there's enough evidence to bring case, and so forth. So the numbers just kind of trickle away. Um and you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. We see the same thing with female victims. So we know that in, in confidential surveys women report greater uh number of incidents of abuse and than what we what we see in terms of uh police reports and what we see in terms of um, prosecutions and convictions. So it's it's a phenomenon for every victim who's experienced sexual violence, but I do think that men Report men experience unique reporting challenges that likely mirror what women faced many decades ago. So they are facing the reality that uh, they might not be believed. That um, that people, even professionals working in this area, might wonder why they didn't fight off the attacker, especially if the abuser was female. They might discount the degree of harm. They might think, well, it sounds like something bad happened, but, you know, come on, you're a man, and there is a stereotype that men are sexually insatiable. And so if a man did experience sex that he didn't want to have, especially if the perpetrator was a woman, the victim is straight, there's this assumption that, come on, how bad could it have been? Um,
0: In fact, it goes even further. What's wrong with this guy that he's complaining, right? I mean, well it put. even goes Absolutely. to that extreme.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think men, before they report, they can anticipate that they're going to get that kind of reaction. So they, that makes them less likely to report. They don't want to put up with that. They're already suffering.
0: We'll be back after this message. This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. The Scripps faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing media environment. The Scripps College of Communication is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country and was named a Center of Excellence in Ohio in 2010. It's proud to showcase the Stephen L. Schoonover Center for Communication, the brand new facility that opened in 2015. State-of-the-art laboratory spaces and flipped classrooms are just two of the many features in this new building. Learn more about the Scripps College of Communication at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. If we could talk a little bit about child sexual abuse victims who are male with female perpetrators, they go through even a a different set of circumstances, correct? Failure uh, to report is even higher with them, and, and sometimes they even change the gender of their perpetrators?
1: We did include a small survey that we didn't, wasn't done by us. We didn't look at it in great detail, but we did reference an earlier survey that found that victims of female perpetrators of child abuse are so convinced that no one will believe them, that they have reported that instead the perpetrator was male. You know, they wanted to talk about it. They needed to get help and support around it. And it's just quite hard for people um, to believe. It's hard for me to believe. I understand it. I have two boys and I don't get nervous when they're, you know, in a private room with their female piano teacher, but I sometimes get nervous when I think about, you know, camps where they are away from me and there's lots of men or teenage boys around. So it's something that we all carry with us and um, it makes it very, very hard for people who've been victimized by women to come forward because they know they, they might have the, the they might have those biases as well. And um and they, they know that those that they're going to reach out to will have those biases. So um so it is I think it's really challenging. We have a lot of stereotypes about women that um, serve to protect abusive women. So we assume that that women are are caring and nurturing and good with children and nonviolent and passive and not particularly sexual or sexually aggressive. So all of those ideas that we have about women serve to make it very difficult for people to anticipate and respond when women are abusers of children.
0: Now, if you take that uh, to the uh, another level and make the abuser the mother of the child uh, you've got a, a whole another layer of going against stereotypes correct
1: absolutely I mean how painful you know it's just it's just tragic and I have met adult men who experience this as boys and it's you know, it's just painful beyond belief because there is an understanding that this is this is your ultimate protector. This is the person who loves you more than anyone, and and when there's abuse in that context, it's it's bewildering to say the least.
0: One of the things that that came out in, in your literature and, and other literature that that I've looked at uh, about this is is the fact that female perpetration has has really been downplayed in in among professionals in mental health and social work and and other other fields. Is that a correct perception? And if so, why is that?
1: I believe it's a correct perception, and there is evidence to support that. As to the why, um, again, I think it feeds into these gender stereotypes, and as someone who is worked on women's rights movements and has been a part of the anti-rape movement and who considers herself a feminist, I'm concerned that these stereotypes, even though they, you know, I guess, favor women in the sense that they view women in a a more favorable light when you assume that they're not abusive, I actually think that they're troubling because they do portray women in a very outdated, two-dimensional way. You know that women are, are, as my colleague Brenda Smith wrote in an article of hers, pure, passive, noble, and ignorant. Um, and this idea that women are not complicated, are not multidimensional, do not have the capacity to dominate others, do not have the capacity to be violent. These, these, a fuller understanding of women and all of their complexities in my view is an important feminist goal however complicated it may be i think we i think we are able to be complicated and to view women as as complicated and i think that that's, that helps advance the cause of of gender equality to understand that women are not these these two-dimensional stereotypes and so understanding that they can commit abuse and that that abuse is harmful is part of this needs to be part part of this broader agenda and so, I think those who are charged with responding to abuse, whether they're social workers or healthcare providers or people working in the criminal justice system, you know, they are members of society too. They have the same stereotypes that, that many of us have, and there, frankly, hasn't been great data to challenge their assumptions. You know, there have there, this this topic of of female perpetration um, has really just been. Beneath the surface for many, many years, and I would say it's only really in the last decade that it's that it's begun to get the attention of researchers. And really, there have been no surveys that have, until recently, that have been as as uh, as well done and as thorough as the surveys that we look at in our paper and no one has ever kind of brought them all together before to say look we as a country actually happen to know a lot right now and a lot of what we have learned does challenge this male perpetrator female victim paradigm now that paradigm is still real that form of abuse still happens but there's a lot of other abuse that is happening that has not gotten anyone's attention so that's why it's very important at this point in time the professionals who are serious about working against sexual victimization, it's really important that they begin to question their own assumptions and that they begin to look at the problem more broadly. And many of them have. So there are a number of rape crisis centers um, who were born out of the feminist movement and um, were really uh, early on envisioned themselves as sort of a safe space for women, a place that could provide services for women victims. And they have done that quite ably for many many years and recently a number of them have begun to say you know what we're ready to serve men as well and we're also ready to serve women who are victims of abuse by women you know (laughs) to lesser degrees you know some are not doing that and the programs for women abused by women seem to be quite minuscule. but there is an effort there is an understanding um, on the part of many of these centers that it's time to broaden their mission and we're in the beginning stages of seeing seeing that change, but it needs to go much further.
0: Your first work, you said, looked at male victimization. Your second work focused more on looking at the female perpetrator. What's the next logical progression? What's next?
1: Well, together with some of the same researchers that I worked on this paper with, uh, this recent one, we are we have begun to look at... Um, the issues involving LGBT persons held in uh, prisons and jails. Um, In terms of of the non-incarcerated population, I don't know what's next. I'm still thinking about that. Um, But I do think it is important to mention um, LGBT populations um, broadly, but also specifically within prisons and jails. And the reason that we're, we're doing this this next stage, and we have a number of papers that will be coming out um, on this topic, is that we, we actually, for the first time, know a lot more um, about what's happening in terms of sexual victimization in those populations. And we know about it because there was a federal bill called the Prison Rape Elimination Act, known as PREA, it's acronym for short, and PREA required... Um, Annual surveys of prisons and jails across the country, again, nationally representative samples. Um, Many tens of thousands of inmates have now been surveyed using state of the art survey technology, and the results are just astonishing. So, we have used those results in our previous papers just talking about men and women and talking about the overall prevalence of sexual victimization. So, we reported in in the survey about male victimization that you referred to earlier, we reported that there are approximately 1 million incidents of sexual victimization happening behind bars in the U.S. every year, and that's an absolutely alarming figure. And when we try to understand who the victims are, we've learned a lot of very surprising things. Um, for one, we we have learned that um, lesbian and bisexual women bisexual and gay men, are vastly disproportionately victimized. So as frequently as 11 times more likely to have experienced victimization than their heterosexual counterparts. So that's, that's very alarming. And we have also learned, for example, again, looking at female perpetrators, that women who are held in adult prisons are more likely to be abused by other women inmates than men are to be abused by male inmates so when we have this notion about sexual violence in prisons there's this assumption that it's men abusing men and that does happen that's a real problem but women are even more likely to be victimized which is astonishing to me and an important finding we also learned that the abusers when it comes to staff of inmates are disproportionately women by a large margin. And that's because when you look at um, both adult men in prisons and jails and you look at um, juveniles, male juveniles, the overwhelming majority of their staff perpetrators are female. Uh, Women and girls are more likely to be abused by male staff, but they only make up about 10% of the population. So when you look at the numbers overall, you see that it's that women are, are comprising the majority of abusers. So, um, so we're interested in that, and we're looking at, um, we're looking at um, a range of different issues related to sexual victimization behind bars. We have a separate paper coming out about transgender inmates and the issues around sexual victimization that they face.
0: Well, congratulations on your work so far. It's been long needed and, uh, you know, it's it's really appreciated, I think.
1: And I really thank you for paying attention to this issue and covering it. It's really, really fantastic to get the word out.
0: Today, we've talked with Laura Stemple, Director of the Health and Human Rights Law Project at the UCLA School of Law. We talked to her about the prevalence of women acting as perpetrators of sexual violence against men. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum on iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at MPR1. We welcome your feedback so please rate our podcast or review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about our podcast, you can direct them to me by email at hudson@ohio.edu. At